0: Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. Uh, So he's, he's bouncing off the walls back there. I can hear him vibrating. All right. So Luke chapter number five. This morning, of course, we are continuing to move towards our six-year anniversary, and I want to ask you an important question as we begin. I've got a lot of extra questions to ask you. So this is not the main question, but this is one we all should have been thinking about, praying about, focused on for the last several weeks. Who is your one? We are, are looking for everyone to bring a guest. a visit. And look, you don't have to bring just one. You can bring 20 or 30 So, you know, if you're like, well, I've got 15 people want to come, but Pastor said I can only bring one. No, you can bring more than one. But I want us all to think, who can I bring that needs to be here? And here's the thing a lot of time churches, they they we spend a lot of time transferring members. You know, it's like, well, I've got this friend, they're a great Christian, they go to a good church, but man, they need to come to our church because it's better. Look, I agree. We have the greatest church in the world. And it's because we have the greatest leader in the world. It's not me. It's Jesus. All right? Because we are not a perfect church. And if you're looking for a perfect church, you're not going to find one. And if you do find one, it's an empty church. And as soon as you walk in, guess what? It's not perfect anymore. Uh, But I think we've got a great church. I think we we care for each other. We care for our community. I think we've got a great church. But if someone's going to a good gospel preaching church and they're involved, I don't want to steal them. You know, but if they're like, well, they're going to a cult, yeah, let's steal them. Uh, Or they don't, they don't, well, here's really what we're looking for. They don't go to church. Maybe they used to, but they don't. Maybe they've never gone to church. We seem to think think that because we live in Roanoke, you know, everybody's saved. Uh, No, they're not. We have a lot of lost people in Roanoke. You go to school with them, you go to work with them, you live next to them, uh, you may live with them. I'm not 100% sure. I'm talking about me and the woman I sleep with. Um, but anyway, uh, so we, we're looking for someone that yet God has laid on your heart. So you're like, well, I don't know anybody. Lexi does this to me all the time. She's always come, well, Dad, I don't have anybody I can invite. And I'm like, you play with our neighbor's kids all the time. And, uh, you know, you invite somebody. If you ask God, God, who would you like me to invite? Is there anyone in my life that I could invite to this service. God's going to lay them on your heart. And so that's what we're looking for. Who is your one? And here's the thing. In church, when we do, you know, things like this, who's your one, or invite your one, or we have big programs, it's really easy uh, in church culture to get caught up in a movement and not really get involved in that movement. We, we become cheerleaders for the church. We become cheerleaders for the kingdom of God, and cheerleaders for the, the, for the movement of God. And we sit on the sidelines, we watch things happen, but we never get involved. We don't get involved in what's going on. You end up being a cheerleader, but not a contributor. This morning I want to tell a story from the Bible that hopefully will, will change that attitude in every single one of us. I want to encourage you to not just sit back during this period, and see what's going on and get excited about what's going on. But get involved in what's going on. And not just during this invite your one. But for the rest of the time until Jesus comes back. Say, I'm not just going to sit back and cheer people on. I'm going to get involved and help. I'm going to contribute to the movement of God. So look in Luke chapter 5. We're going to start reading verse number 17. The Bible says, And it came to pass on a certain day, as he was teaching, that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by, which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. So Jesus, by this time... He's been, he's been going around healing people. Of course, we saw last week, an, a lawyer is not you know, like we think a lawyer. They are experts of the law. And so Jesus is going around. He's teaching. He's healing people. He's already gathered his first disciples. And he's kind of going from place to place, beginning his earthly ministry, starting to teach people that he is the Messiah, starting to prove to people through his miracles and through the works he's done that he is the Messiah. And he's constantly encountering these experts of the law, these Pharisees, these these religious leaders of the day. Now, a few of them are coming to Jesus and they're learning from him because they believe he is who he says he is. They're excited for what he's doing and they want to get involved. They want to jump on board. But the majority of them are looking for a way to discredit him. What he's teaching and what he's doing is is really hurting their livelihood. See, during this time, of course, the Pharisees and Sadducees and the the experts of the law, they had put a lot of undue weight on the people. Now, if you've ever studied uh, the Old Testament, especially you studied the law that God gave to Israel... It's very in depth, and it's it's impossible to for anyone, uh, especially today, to obey. Now, then, it, you know. Now, you know, you can't have mixed fabrics, and probably every one of us here is wearing some type of mixed fabric. You're wearing, you know, uh, silk shirt with wool pants, or you're just wearing polyesters mixed. Back then, they didn't really have that issue, but they did have a lot of hard things to understand. The whole purpose of the law was. There's no way for you to completely obey the law. And what the Pharisees and Sadducees were doing, they were making extra rules to make sure people obeyed the law. Like on the Sabbath day. They, they would make a, you know, you can't work on the Sabbath. They would make a rule where you can't even, you know, start your fire on the Sabbath. Or, you know, we see later in the Bible, Jesus talk about, hey, if someone asks you to go a mile, then go an extra. They would put a the certain amount of steps you could take on a Sabbath. They put all these extra rules on people to make sure they were obeying the law, and it was, it was impossible. They were putting undue burden on people to to tell them they had to earn the favor of God. And then here comes Jesus, and he's teaching completely contrary to them. He's teaching you you can't earn God's favor, so I'm here to show you the true way of salvation. And so he was showing through his miracles and through his teachings that he had power from God. He's healing throughout the region, and just a lot is going on. Then look at verse number 18. and behold, men brought in a bed, uh, a man which was taken with a palsy, and they sought means to bring him in and to lay him before him. So there are four men who are carrying this man who is sick of the palsy. When you really look at it, he's paralyzed. He's got some degenerative disease where he's lost complete function and complete use of his body, and he's, he can't move, and he's paralyzed. And I've heard a lot of people preach about, man, this guy had four friends, and get you four friends like this guy. We don't know if they were his friends. We don't know if they were just walking down the street and saw this dude laying on the street and said, we got to do something. We know there are four men who knew somebody, whether they were friends with him, whether they were related to him, whether they just saw him on the street, they saw someone who had a problem, who had a situation that needed to be fixed. And they had heard about Jesus. And they said, if we can can just get him to Jesus, Jesus can fix him. Jesus can heal him. Look at verse 19. And when they could not find by way what they might bring him in, because of the multitude, they went upon the housetop and let him down through the tiling with his couch in the midst before Jesus. So Jesus, of course, by this time, the crowd's gotten so large. Uh, you know, After this, he starts teaching on hillsides because people are, you know, can't get to him. But the crowd's gotten so large, uh, it's filled that whoever, whoever's house he is in, it is, they filled the house, they're blocking the doorways, they're blocking the windows. These four men, they bring this man to try to get him to Jesus, and they can't, they can't find a way in. There's no way to get him to Jesus. The doors are blocked. The windows are blocked. The crowd's too much. No one's letting them through. So they do something incredible. They climb up on the roof of this house, and they, they cut a hole in the roof. Again, we don't get any reaction to the, to the homeowner. I know what my reaction would be. You just cut a hole in my roof? Serious? Why are you doing it? But they go up on the roof. They cut this guy, a hole in this guy's roof, and they lower this man down right in front of Jesus. And look at verse number 20. And when he saw their faith, he said unto him, now there's, there's, a, there's a key there, he's looking at the faith of the men, and he does something to the sick man, but he says, and when he saw their faith, he said unto him, man, thy sins be forgiven thee. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So Jesus, you know, he's just, he's sitting there, he's teaching, all of a sudden, uh, you know, the tile, the roof's opened up and this guy's brought down right in front of him and he's amazed at the faith of the dedication of these men who are carrying this guy and so he looks at the man who's paralyzed and he says, your sins are forgiven. Now that's not what they wanted. They did not bring him there, they didn't climb up on the roof, they didn't, you know, and I've always wondered about the logistics about this, because they're carrying this guy, the Bible says a couch, it's really just a bed, it's a mat, but this guy can't move, so they got to climb on the roof and then pull this guy up and then cut a hole in the roof and then lower this guy down in front of Jesus without, you know, killing him or hurting themselves. And they're they doing all this so that Jesus will heal this guy. So this guy will get up and walk. And when they finally get him in front of Jesus, Jesus looks at him, looks at them, sees their faith and says, man, your sins are forgiven you. That's not what they wanted. Uh, they wanted this man to be healed. But the focus on the passage is not on whether Jesus healed him or whether Jesus forgave him. But the focus of the passage is on the response of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. They hear Jesus say this, your sins are forgiven. And they are astonished, and not in a good way. They're not like, oh, of course, he's God in the flesh. He's the Messiah. They're like, how dare he say that? How dare he say your sins are forgiven? Only God can forgive sins. Now, they ask a question That is asked throughout the new testament and it's really the most important question that anyone can ask and have answered in the world and that question is who is this jesus guy who is he really is he a a good teacher is he a, a a magician is he a prophet is he a priest who is Jesus. Even Jesus asks his apostles who they think he is. You know, He says, you know, people, who do people say I am? Oh, they say you're Elijah. They say you're another prophet. And he goes, okay, that's great. That's all. Who do you think I am? Who do you say that I am? You know, it's the most important question every person in the world has to answer. Jesus is more than just an incredible figure in history. You know, during, the, during a storm, Jesus is asleep in the boat, and they are seasoned fishermen, men who have spent their life on the sea, who deal with storms. They are scared to death. And Jesus gets up, and he rebukes the storm and says, storm, be still. And the storm is just silent. It just the storm instantly stops. The, the sea is instantly as calm as glass. And the apostles at that moment say, who is this guy? That even nature obeys him. You know, who is this guy that the weather listens to him? And look, I'd have to do it too because I can't even get my kids to, I can't even tell my kids be still and they be still. You know, I tell my kids, y'all stop fighting. You know what they keep doing? Fighting. I tell my kids, stop mess, stop doing that. You know what they keep doing? Whatever that is. You know, but Jesus here, he's getting storms to stop. I'm like, I can't even get kids to Stop. Who is this guy that even nature obeys him? He heals people with his word. He's going to raise people from the dead. Who is Jesus? Well, of course, the answer is he's God. Creation obeys him because he's the creator. Death obeys him because he is the creator of everything. He is the all-powerful, all-knowing God. And of course, Jesus, in this this story in Luke, he knows what the religious leaders are thinking. And so look what happens in verse 22. But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answering said unto them, What reason ye in your hearts, whether it is easier to say that thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, rise up and walk, but that you may know, That the Son of Man hath power upon earth to forgive sins. And he said unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, arise and take up thy couch and go into thine house. I love his response. You know, he knows what they're thinking. And, you know, they're not saying out loud, who are you? We're asking. He says, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, who am I to forgive sins? Well, what's easier, to tell someone your sins are forgiven or to, to heal them? What's easier? And just to, just to prove to you that I have power to do both, I'm going to heal him too. looks at the man with the pausing and says, get up, rise, and walk. Then look at verse 25. <clears throat> and immediately he rose up before them and took that upon whereupon he lay and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed and they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, we have seen strange things this day. So this guy gets up. He picks up his bed. He walks away. Everyone is amazed. Now, there's a few things I want to point out in this story as we prepare for anniversary service, but I want to focus on the four guys on the roof. The four guys who brought this man to Jesus. Number one, first thing we notice is, number one, they had a mission. They had a mission. And their mission was to get this paralyzed guy to Jesus so he could be healed. Mission defines us. A mission gives us direction. It gives direction to our families. It gives direction to our lives. It drives our culture. You know, companies have mission statements. And the mission statement of a company is meant to guide them what they do, what they, how they interact with the rest of the world. Nike's uh, mission statement is to bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. I know you thought it was just do it, but it's not. That's a slogan. Their mission statement is to bring innovation and inspiration to every athlete in the world. Coca-Cola's mission statement is to refresh the world and make a difference. Amazon's mission statement Is bringing the best user experience to customers through innovative hardware, software, and services. Amazon's mission statement is to control every aspect of your life. It's not. Uh, You know, anybody remember our mission statement? Love God, love others, serve others. That's what drives us, that's what compels us. You know, sometimes your, your family has a mission statement, our family has a mission statement. Our family's mission statement is to treat our, our family as good as we treat our best friend. And if we live by that mission statement, I feel bad for our kids' friends because they treat them poorly. That's what I got to say. Now, look, we don't, we don't you know, always follow it, but we have that, that, that mission to, to guide how we treat each other, how we act with each other. Uh, mission gives us guideline. It keeps us focused on what matters most to you or your family or your company. You know, if you, you go outside your company's mission statement, even if it's for something good, your your boss will reel you back in and say, hey, look, that's a good idea, that's a great, but that's not. that doesn't follow with our mission. That's not what we're trying to accomplish. You know, even if what you're doing is good, if it doesn't follow the mission, it's not allowed. You know, Instagram is more than an app. Instagram is a company with a mission statement. Their mission statement is to capture and share the world's moments. And look, we do that all the time. Pull out your phone, snap a picture, post it on Instagram. You are following Instagram's mission. You are doing exactly what they want you to do with with their company. Facebook, their mission statement is giving people the power to build community and bring the world closer together. Now look, whether the community Facebook is building is one the world needs has yet to be determined, but they have a mission. Jesus had a mission. His mission is found in Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. These men, they had a mission to get this man to Jesus So that he could be healed. It drove them. It moved them. It gave them the focus they needed to get the job done no matter what. So, what drives you? You know, what pushes you forward in life? Having a good job? Having enough money for a retirement? Leaving an inheritance to your children? Look, all those are good things. There's nothing wrong with them. Those are good things that God wants us to have. But what drives you spiritually? What kingdom goals do you have? You know, if you're, as a parent, is your goal that your kids would fall in love with Jesus? If that's your mission, then everything you do should be to reach that goal. You're going to work hard every day to show your kids the love, the grace, the mercy that God has. For them. You're going to do everything you can to show them his beauty, and you're going to pray that they would give their heart, that they would give their life to him. Jim Simbala is the pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle, uh, but he played in college, he played college basketball. He was very good at college basketball. He actually could have gone professional in college basketball. Now, This was way back when professional basketball was just getting started, so you really didn't have to be that good. But anyway, he was good enough. He could have gone pro. He could have furthered his career in basketball. But while in college, he wrote a mission for his life, and he says, I will not let my life slip by without God showing himself mighty on my behalf. These men had a driving force that was their motivation, and it was getting this man to Jesus. As a follower of Jesus, our mission is the same as his, to seek and to save that which is lost. Our mission should be to be used by God to see the lost come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, to get the spiritually sick and crippled to Jesus. They had a mission. Second thing they had, they had an expectation. They had an expectation. They believed. They expected their mission to be successful. Mission moved them to action. They expected God to do what only God could do. So they took a risk. You know, maybe Jesus wouldn't heal him, maybe they wouldn't be able to get him to Jesus, but they took a risk. Men throughout the Bible have taken a risk to see God work through them. I think of Joshua. You know, Joshua of course is the leader of Israel after the death of Moses. Moses is the most revered leader in Israel's history up to that point. He's the one who led them out of slavery through Egypt. He's the one who, as they stood on the banks of the the Red Sea that stood between them and God and saw the Red Sea part because God used him. They're the one that, he's the one that they're on the, he's on Mount Sinai in the presence of God, getting the word of God. He led them through the wilderness. He he, prayed and manna came from heaven. Moses, the one who prayed and water came from a rock. He is God. He is the most incredible leader Israel's ever seen. And now he's dead. And Joshua's taking over. And Joshua's given the incredible task from God, cross the Jordan River and conquer the Promised Land. But the Promised Land's full of enemies. Their first task is to defeat a city called Jericho. Jericho, at this time, was the most fortified, well-defended city in the world. Many archaeologists and Bible theologians believe that the walls of Jericho were so thick, it was as wide as a four-lane highway. Chariots could run on top of the wall. Well-armed, well-fortified, they could, they could take a siege and, and last for, for decades. And Israel has never really, you know, they're not battle people. They've had a few battles, but really God's fought for them. So the night before the battle, Joshua's worried He doesn't know what to do. He's up, he's looking at Jericho, kind of walking around the walls of Jericho, not sure what to do, and God comes to him. And God tells him, says, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Here's what God told him. Joshua, I've given you everything you need To not only be successful, but have the courage you need to do the job. To have the courage you need to guarantee you success. Stop worrying if you are good enough because you're not. And just start trusting me. So Joshua's first task, of course, to conquer Jericho. And God gives him a plan. And it is an incredible plan. Joshua, you're going to march around Jericho every day, once a day. Don't say a word. Nobody talk. Every day just march around the wall. On the seventh day, march around seven times, blow some trumpets, yell real loud, and men you're going to be victorious. Look, if I, I've heard people try to explain this like, well, the, the marching of the several million Israelites around Jericho weakened the foundation of the walls. And so the foundation got so weak from their marching that when they blew the sound, no, no, no. God gave them a stupid task, but they did it, and God gave them the victory. On the seventh day, God showed himself powerful. Here's the question. What do you do when God gives you a task that makes absolutely, positively, no sense whatsoever? When you pray, God, who's my one? And God says, you know that person in your office that's just anti-God? That seems to hate God? They hate you because you seem to be, you're a Christian or, you know, they just, they're, they're anti, that's the person I want you to invite. You think, okay, God, I think I got my wires crossed. You meant the sweet old lady that, you know, prays for me every time I walk by. That lady, no, 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 the woman that seems to hate God, that's the one I want you. What do you do when God asks you to do something that makes no sense? Do you, do you trust him? It took risk for these men to trust God. It took risk for Joshua to trust God. They trusted God was going to work. They took a risk, and guess what? God came through. A couple chapters later, they're in a battle. And the battle's going long in the day. And the sun is starting to set. And so you know what Israel and Joshua do? They pray to God. God, could you stop the sun for a little bit? So we can, and look, here's, they're not saying, hey, God, can you stop the sun so we can witness? God, can you stop the sun so we can kill all these people? You know what God did? God stopped the sun. God said, sure. They expected God to do a miracle, and he did. Think about Elijah on Mount Carmel. Israel at this time is just engrossed in Baal worship. The king and the queen have brought in these false prophets and the the prophets of God are, are hiding and they're running. And so Elijah says, hey, let's bring up all the prophets of Baal and brings up four of the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And he says, let's chat let's have a challenge. You pray for your God to start the fire. I'll pray to my God to start a fire to see who's who's really the true God. And so the prophets of Baal they build this altar and they're they're praying for hours. They're cutting themselves and Elijah's just under a tree making fun of them. I mean you read the story he's like maybe you're maybe your god's in the bathroom maybe he's got some problems leave him alone he'll be back soon but just making fun of him nothing happens finally elijah says all right it's my turn goes out prays a short prayer fire comes down from heaven engulfs the altar engulfs the whole thing the entire uh, nation of israel is amazed at what god has done he prays a short prayer god show these people your power show them that you're truly god elijah expected God to do a miracle, and God did. You know why God doesn't do so many miracles today? We don't expect him to. We don't think he will, so we don't even ask. We don't even try. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar builds a, a, a statue, orders everyone to bow down and worship it when the music plays. And so gets the whole kingdom together, plays the song. Everyone bows down to worship this thing. But then there's three guys standing up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Always ask, where's Daniel? Daniel's bowing. No, I don't know what Daniel was doing. But anyway, Shadrach standing up. So he brings them before him and says, look, I'm going to give you one more chance. When I play the music, you bow down and worship. And they say, look, you can play as much as you want to. You can order as much as you want to. We believe God is going to deliver us. But if he doesn't. We're still going to trust him. They expected a miracle, and God gave them a miracle. They expected God to protect them, and he did. You know, Hebrews 10, 39 says, But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Here's what that verse means. We don't shrink back from challenges. We trust God to do what we cannot do, and we move forward in faith. You know, Hebrews chapter 11 has what we call the hall of faith. People who had faith in God and saw great things happen. They saw God shut the mouths of lions. They saw God, you know, save humanity after building the ark. They saw God give them children in their old age. But it also contains people who stepped out in faith for God and got sawed in half. Got burned alive got killed for their faith because they took a risk for God. When's the last time we risked anything for God's kingdom? These men had an expectation for God to move. They expected this man to be healed. They had faith that Jesus was going to do what only he could do. As believers, we have hope that Jesus is who he says he is. That Jesus can do what he says he can do. But does that hope, does that faith move us to step out and expect him to do what only he can do? You know, the gospel should move us forward. We are not just cheerleaders of the gospel. We are competitors in the battle for the souls of men. We contribute to the kingdom of God. We expect Him to use us. We have a mission. Here's the third thing we notice about them. Number three, they encountered an obstacle. Look, here's the thing. You step out in faith for God, you are going to face obstacles. What do you do when you have one? They're trying to bring this man to Jesus, but they, they can't get anywhere near him. The doors are blocked the windows are full, there's no way for them to get there. There is nothing that they could do. You know what most of us would do at that moment? Oh, well, we tried. We had good intentions, but I guess God doesn't want us to do this. I guess God has shut the door. He said no. You know, we use Christian language to figure out what God wants for us. God, if you're, is this what you want me to do? Just open the doors for me. I'll step through any open door. You know what an open door is? It's the path of least resistance. I'm not saying God doesn't open doors, but sometimes God says, you know what? I want you to climb on the roof and cut a hole in. I'm going to shut the door. I'm going to shut the windows. I want you to go the extra mile and really do something for me. You know, the open door may be the easy way, but what do you do when the door that you think God wants you to go through is blocked or locked. You know, what if Paul only walked through open doors? We wouldn't have half the New Testament. Paul was told by people, hey, you want to go to Rome? The door's shut to you, Paul. But he went anyway. He did what God wanted to do. He was flogged he was beaten, he was shipwrecked, he was jailed, he was eventually killed. Does that sound like walking through a bunch of open doors? No. He encountered obstacles. Sometimes an open door doesn't mean God wants you to go through, and a closed door doesn't mean God wants you to quit. He may want you to climb on the roof, cut a hole through, and get the job done. Sometimes God wants you to do more than is expected to get people to Jesus. You know, I graduated from Bible college. I found a lot of open doors in ministry. I had a job offer to go be an assistant pastor in Texas. But, you know, it's Texas. They're weird down there. It's all bigger in Texas. Yeah, it's crazier in Texas, too. Uh, I had a job offer to go be a youth pastor and an assistant pastor in the upper peninsula of Michigan. But it's Michigan. You know, it's it's cold up there. It's it's snowing there right now. Uh, you know, right now the lakes are frozen. And you know, it, I I lived in Chicago for five years, and every winter I thought, you know, I, I know it's terrible. We stole this land from the Native Americans, but why do we keep it? It's terrible up here. Give it back. Let them have it. But, you know, so I had, I had opportunities. I, can go to, I could go to Texas and be an assistant youth pastor. I could go to Michigan. I had open doors. I haven't I had an opportunity to stay in Indiana and, and work for the college that I graduated from. But God told me, I want you to go to start a church in Roanoke, Virginia. You ever tried to raise money to start a church in the Bible Belt? It is not easy. I found a lot Of closed doors I had pastors from Roanoke call me and tell me we don't need you here we got it covered I had a lot of closed doors I had a goal I knew what God wanted me to do and I am grateful you may not be but I am grateful that I said you know what God I know this is what you want me to do I don't care no look I found a lot of open doors too God blessed it in incredible ways. But I found a lot of resistance that a lot of people would say, why am I doing this? It's hard. Walking with God, serving God, doing what God calls you to do, is going to be hard. But it's so rewarding. Don't give up. Climb on the roof, cut the hole in it, and get the people to Jesus any way possible. Why? Because of this last point. Number four, they got more than they expected. They wanted this man healed. Physically healed. But they got more than that. Look at verse number 25 again. And immediately he rose before them and took up that whereupon he lay and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed and they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. They got this man healed. But, man, they got so much more. Not only did this man get saved, had his sins forgiven, but everyone around amazed and glorified God. He was saved and people recognized Jesus as the Messiah. Look, don't settle for the mundane when Jesus offers us the miraculous. Ask God to do what only he can do in the life of one person. Look, these guys, they wanted this man's external problems fixed. But Jesus saw his greatest need. Yeah, he fixed his physical problems, but first he fixed his eternal problems. He gave him salvation, and that is everyone's greatest need. Look, we don't need physical healing. You may, but your greatest need is not physical healing. Your greatest need is not financial healing. Your greatest need is not relationship healing. Our greatest need is to have no Jesus as our Savior. Our greatest need is spiritual healing. We don't need our circumstances changed. We need our heart changed. You know, at one point, every single one of us, again, say, where am I in the story? You're the paralyzed guy. At one point, we were all this paralyzed man. Hopeless, no hope, no, no way to fix ourselves, no way to deal with our own situations. We needed healing that only Jesus could give us. But here's the thing we also at one point had four people who cared about us. We had someone in our life who looked at us and said, They need Jesus. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a, a, a relative. Mine was, was April who saw my need. Now, of course, she just wanted to date me real bad and wouldn't date me until I was saved. And so, you know, she's like, I got to get that boy to Jesus so I can marry him. That's what she thought. No. But, you know, she, she saw my need of salvation. She cared enough to do whatever necessary to get me to God. If you're saved today, someone climbed on a roof, cut a hole in it, And did whatever they had to do to get you to Jesus. Because you needed to get there. You were this paralyzed guy. We were lost, without hope, without any possibility of being saved in our own strength. And they knew, someone knew, Jesus loved you so much that he left the glory of heaven and came to earth, born of a virgin, lived a life you could never live. He lived a sinless life. He died in your place. He died for your sins, not his. He absorbed the wrath of God for my sins and your sins and the world's sins. He went to hell for me, was buried for me, and rose three days later to redeem me to God the Father. He did what I couldn't do, and he did what I needed to do. He paid my sin debt because I couldn't. And someone cared enough to say, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to get him to Jesus. If you're saved... Someone cared about you enough to say, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to get them to Jesus. So who's your one? Who is the person that God's laid on your heart that he said, you're going to face some closed doors? You may deal with some closed windows, but that's the person I need you to bring to me. That's the person I need to make sure you bring to my feet so that they can be healed eternally from their sin. Who's your one? Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a sibling, a friend, a co-worker. Whatever it is, as a follower of Jesus, we have a mission. Get the lost to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ any way we can. We were called from our old life to a new life of building God's kingdom. Find your one. Do not let closed doors stop you. Expect God to do miracles, and God will. And you will be incredibly blessed when you see God use you to build his kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we do thank you so much that you've given us. God, we thank you for the opportunity, the privilege to come together to study this story. Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.